Uh, we have the pleasure of talking to Tim Mayard, who's taken time out from the Players' Party. He's a busy man, but, you know, he's so nice enough to speak with us. Welcome to your own club, Tim. <laughs> well, thanks so much for having us. And, uh, yeah, we're off to a great start here, no. bringing uh, pro tennis back to the Boston area. Absolutely. No, thanks for having us. So, yeah, I mean, fans like myself, this is just a, such a treat. Like, uh, pro tennis is back to Boston after 15 years. So... What triggered this decision? I know you came back and started an academy. Was this your vision or this is more accidental? Things happened? What has upset me the most is that in the last 20 years or so, there haven't been a lot of good players or great players coming out of New England. There's Jared Donaldson, uh, but I think at 11 he went to Argentina? Argentina when he was 11. And so there hasn't been any big... ATP or WTA players since then and when I played there was I think five or six in the top hundred WTA or ATP so this, is, this has got to change you've got to get some good players coming out of this area so first thing is start an academy second thing is get the public exposed to great tennis mm. and there's no substitute for live tennis. But do you think cold weather is an excuse or do you think you can still produce world-class players with snow or like gloomy conditions for like five to six months? Uh, ask Vilander and the Swedes. <laughs> <laughs> ask uh, Steffi and Boris. So in my mind it's it's three things. You've got to get great coaches, you have to have a great culture, and then you have to find great athletes. Those things all work together and by culture I also mean teaching is part of the culture yeah. so those things work in cycles because once you start to get some good players then you get parents who are excited about putting their kids into tennis as opposed to let's say lacrosse or football that starts a whole cycle and then you have good teaching and then the whole thing progresses there's great tradition in New England it's funny you said that because I remember I think it was Roddick or someone said once that uh, in America we have so much competition from the four major sports that a lot of times tennis gets the leftover talent. Do you believe that? And if that's the case, how do we make tennis more accessible and what are you doing so you get the top talent, you know, the best player doesn't go play football or basketball? Well, Andy's right in this. We also see the other side of that because in women's tennis we have What's been nice is to see so many great young American women coming along. So obviously the best or a lot of the best women in America are going into tennis. How do we fix that in the States for men? First thing it seems to me is create a great American male. <laughs> yeah. We haven't had one in two generations now. So you have to have one or two really great players to excite the next generation so that's number one and then otherwise you've got to do a couple things you've got to poach young athletes from other sports tennis has a great opportunity right now football lacrosse hockey particularly lacrosse and hockey which are big in New England the whole thing about concussions mm -hmm. would make any sane parent want to bring them to the Tim Mayo Tennis Academy at seven years old yeah. and have them play tennis instead of playing these sports where they're going to get hurt. Plus, tennis is the greatest sport. Yeah, it's all teaching the problem solving in its own way, individuality. And, li and you're going to play for the rest of your life. So any parent who wants to think about, well, what sport's really going to be a part of their kid's life? I, I don't see a lot of 23-year-olds playing football 
Sure. You know, they're, they're playing tennis. So athletes, hopefully there's a, a good, great American male on the horizon, although I, I don't see it right now. And then culture and training coaches is critical. Mm. And we spend a lot of time here with the coaches training them. Absolutely. Uh, so let's talk about the talent that lives there. Is there anyone that we should be aware of who's in the academy, who's about to break, you know, maybe make a breakthrough in the tours? Uh, is there any, you know? Oh, our best pl uh, young woman is uh, Nadia Samarewski, who played here. She had a good, good uh, match in the first round. And she's number one in the 16s in the doubles in the nation. Very strong player. But has a way to go, and then uh, a lot of a lot of good young talent, but nothing nothing great. Hmm. Right, so but that's going to change. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm very you know optimistic. It's going to change, and you know we need local players. Like you said, it resonates more yeah. when you have one of your own going out yeah, there. Yeah, I mean we have some good players. Brooklyn Bendis, who was number two in the section last year in the twelve and unders. We have a lot of good sectional and uh, nationally ranked players. A couple of players in the main draw too, right, for this event? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So uh, Nastasi was in the, in the mm -hmm. qualifying. Brittany Collins today, who got her first WTA points uh, after coming out of UMass. So she's she's doing really well. But top talent, we're talking, no. Mm. So again, it's a very generic question, but you know, since I'm in your company, I'm going to throw it. Yeah. A lot of times we hear like Murray was practicing. Uh, say the old Crandon Park facility and you hear you know all these tennis centers where players go and local clubs let them because of course they are players so do you also have that kind of vision maybe some players can train here or oh yeah we, is we that, love that is that's that, part of having a tournament like this is having some players who will stop in and train so we've already had requests from two players can they come here at different times of the year after the US Open because again the kids have to see good tennis they have to see what it's like to train now, i can blab as long as mm -hmm. i'll blab forever but when they see a good player training it gets them excited they start to realize the the uh, discipline it takes so i took a couple kids in the gym earlier they watch these girls play three setters and then they're in there stretching and warming so yeah. it's that stuff but that's what i mean by culture it's contagious you know it's like, contagious yeah but they have to see it firsthand. Absolutely. And if you go to the open and you sit up in the 300 section, it doesn't translate. That's what I'm telling this guy. Let's go to Qualies next week and see oh, world-class tennis. The yeah. best. You I mean, go to the it's good to see Federer and Djokovic, but, you know, pay 250 bucks and wear the bleachers. Just not... <laughs> well, the thing is, you're going to see, if you go to the Qualies, like last year I saw, who did I see? Uh, I saw Kyrgios practicing with uh, Malfis. There you go. Right, they were playing a set. And it was the worst set I've ever seen in my life. Of course. <laughs> They're probably making plans for dinner, like maybe yeah. what nightclub to it, I don't know. <laughs> but the beautiful thing is that in the qualities, you're watching top talent and you're watching the you know the great stars practicing. Yeah. So I think the qualities are the perfect way to go. Absolutely. So you've heard from Mr. Mayard himself. Yeah. All right. So let's quickly change uh, topics. The USTA announced the wild cards and there's a lot of talk on Twitter. I don't know if you paid attention. Jack Sock gets a wild card and Tommy Paul doesn't and Taylor Fritz comes out and tweets he was the highest ranked guy and what's up with him not getting so I'm sure uh, Jack Sock is one name nobody took directly but a lot of fans are saying but then there's a point that he was injured so they're probably trying to give him that wild card because he was not too long ago the highest ranked US male so you sat on those meetings is there a method to the madness who decides these things and I wouldn't say it's madness it's, the USTA is in a very difficult position they have to balance 
who they think can really push through to the top versus who quote unquote sort of earned it. And there's no right way of doing it. Uh, they in a perfect world they would both get in. I mean, Sock you know, was a top ten player. Yeah, not too long. So I think you have to honor that and say, you know, we're going to help Jack make this this step back uh, into the game because. He's been struggling, so I think it's the right choice. Mm. I felt bad for Tommy, but it's not as if Tommy's not going to have a chance to. I mean, yeah, Tommy's been playing really well. So I think well. the other argument was like, you know, back the horse that's going to go the farthest. He could probably draw like a tough opponent in quality then lose seven six in the third. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, there's not the USTA is in a, in an unwinnable situation. Yeah. There. I think going with Sock is the right choice. Escobar is a good guy. I think he he got one of the uh, wild cards, so he was. I think he's been missing in action for a while. Oh, who got uh, Escobedo. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah he, so he, he and Esso's great too. Yeah. Great talent, and he had a hard stretch, and he's coming back now. It's those things are. In the end, I don't really care that much because. Those guys have a chance, week in and week out, to make it. Mm-hmm. So at some point, Sock is going to have to step up and deliver. Yeah. Some point, Tommy is uh, going to have to make the switch from kind of a challenger level player to a top level ATP player. He has the opportunity. Whether it happens at the open or not, it's not a big deal to me. So when we spoke with Massimo, he said the surface is totally exactly the same as what's going to be the U.S. Open, bounce wise, speed wise, balls are same. So I don't know if you know this, but when U.S. Open decides to make the surface slower or faster, what who triggers that decision, and you know what what factors are in play? You have a lot of rumors, and I think all I know is when I played that the Americans were taken into consideration, and that the summer surfaces progressively got faster, and the Open was the fastest. Why? Because the Americans liked it faster. How it is now, I have no idea, and mm-hmm. how much the Europeans weigh in. And I, I, obviously, mm-hmm. you've got three great players now who carry weight. The other thing to consider is that, and this may not be the case, it was then the center court was actually faster than the outside courts when I played. Right. So whether they're actually consciously choosing that, or some of the top guys are saying, "Look, I'd like it a little bit faster," I have no idea. Is it true the hard courts get faster the more you play on them? Or? Yes, yes. So we just yeah. had these resurfaced two weeks ago for the tournament, and you make the choice about how much sand you've put into the paint. Okay. Then the more friction caused from the feet, and then you clean the courts, and then a lot of the sand gets taken away. So after a while, um, so that's why they resurface them every year at the U.S. Open. Mm. And uh, but I don't know about the speed of the court. It's okay. I'm sure that you know Federer's agents calling up and Serena's agent is calling up, and they may have pull. Who knows? I would say who, who knows? knows exactly. Yeah. All right. So I follow your Twitter like most people do, and you you tweet seldom, but when you tweet, people listen mm. because you kind of bring some nuance to it. When Nick Kyrgios lost first round in uh, Montreal last week, you said you know that just shows he's still not ready for. Because this this was technically a second week, he wins a great tournament in Washington, comes not flat but just straight set loss. So uh, when you, are, I'm sure you're observing something. Yes. Because we are big fans of his talent, but at the same time, we also acknowledge maybe the fitness dimension is missing somewhere. Yeah. Uh, first, I would say, is Nick, we need you. Sport <laughs> needs you. Nick's biggest problem is he has never trained the way he needs to train. So to 
all of a sudden start training hard to win a major, which he would, he's going to put himself at risk because he's never trained at that at that level. Risk of an injury or just yeah. a failure? Yeah, risk of injury because he's never trained the way a real pro should train, which means day after day, week after week, month after month, mm. consistent training, consistent learning to cool down, stretching, mental work. So when most of these guys who don't have his talent learn to train from the time they're, let's say, 14, you learn how to lift properly, you learn how to stretch properly, you learn how to eat you know, properly, learn about periodization, which means basically you'll do like six to ten weeks of super intense training where you're doing heavy weights, then you do fast, you do lighter weights but faster, more reps, then you, in the periodization, you phase out so that by the time you hit the tournaments you want to peak at, you're, so this is, there's a science to this. Mm. And Nick has never, to my understanding, done that. So as soon as you start putting on that load of training on a 25-year-old body who's never done that, he's taking a risk. Okay. And already, he's not, right now, he's clearly not fit enough. Now, the reason I tweeted is because I heard him say, well, I'm just trying to learn better habits day after day and blah, 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 blah. And... <laughs> No, you're right. I, mean. I, I I love Nick, and I think he's great for the game. I love his talent. I love the... Uh, so you don't get too bogged down by the extra stuff that he does because... Well, I do. I get pissed off if he's if he's quitting. Yeah. If I'm a paying fan or a passionate observer, which I am, it's like, why are you doing that? You're, you're ripping people off. So that angers me. But what angers me much as much is the BS of saying, well, now I'm really committing. When do we really think he's committing? I don't, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. And, you know, everybody gets, so, but he's going to have to learn not to win a slam. He's going to have to learn how to train. And that is difficult at 25 because it's boring and it's unbelievably hard work. It comes down to how badly you want, I guess that's what it is, right? Yeah, because to, you know, to train at that level, you have to be willing to put up a tremendous amount of discomfort. It's boring if you're not into that type of thing. They say one thing that separates a great player is the ability to compete when you're tired. So first round at, where was it, for the Canadian? Yep. He's tired. Oh, I'm in a bad mood. Why is he in a bad mood? Because he's out of shape. So are you going to learn to do that in practice first? So who's going to kick his ass out of bed on Tuesday morning after he loses and say, Nick, get out of bed. We're going to practice. And is he going to do that? So that's where that starts to win the Australian Open. He's not going to win the U.S. Open. Hmm. But if he wanted to win the Australian Open, he should get out of bed the day after he loses in the Canadian Open and get his ass going. Absolutely. Well, that's uh, more than I anticipated, but this yeah. is this should be good for the listeners. So uh, let's quickly change uh, topic because you recently applied for the ATP Players Council. We all know how that vote went. And now some familiar names are back in the players' capacity, Roger and Rafa. So what is your take from far? And if you want to share, uh, you know, how the process went and they just told you you're not part of this, if you can combine 
Uh, well, they, I don't think I had enough name recognition with the current players. But clearly what was happening is... Were you even interviewed or...? No, I wasn't. I sent in some pieces and call, I talked to a couple of the players on the phone to try to encourage him to get me to go. But no, I wasn't interviewed. Mm-hmm. The Let's just take a step back. So what I really like to applaud both Justin Gimelstab and Djokovic on is realizing that the player council and the players need to have a stronger voice, particularly in relationships to the slams. And for Djokovic to do that as a top player, I applaud him because it takes a tremendous amount of work to do that. So number one, Justin's clearly not the person to bring on board to do that because of his reputation. Yep. Just So that brings you up to the next stage where uh, the there's a lot of bad blood created on the council between the faction of Djokovic, who wants to really push ahead, and this other more conservative group, who all resigned during the last, uh, right after the Wimbledon election. Hmm. So at that point, you had six board, you had six representatives, and now you had Djokovic really in power, who's really wanting to push ahead. And then Federer says, well, I don't like that path, and I'm going to join. So the beauty of it is you've got on the court <laughs> the two or three greatest players fighting it out. And then in the boardroom, you've got them fighting it out <laughs> as well. It's like, how good does this get? It's like a yeah, great soap opera. Exactly. So clearly, you know, Federer and Nadal liked the status quo. They liked what was going on with, with Chris. Uh, and they wanted to have a say in what was happening. And so we'll see what goes from here. Yeah, the other argument is in our tennis with an accent, Twitter, you know, DM, there's a lot of voices, and uh, one of our good friends, Andrew Burton, he said, look, uh, Vashik Paspasil came with this piece when he said, with the Grand Slams, you know, there should be a bigger share. It's all a good argument, it should be the case, but then you can't compare it to, like, say, team sports, like, you know, say with Chelsea, Man United, or Los Angeles Lakers, because now you're talking about allegiance of fans that one city, and now you're talking tennis that has a 66, 70 stop, you know, throughout the year. So, to convince Wimbledon to grow, you know, I don't know what the argument no, is structured. I, no, of course Wimbledon should give more money. They should? Oh, absolutely. But how do you convince them to promote the tennis because their brand is... Easy, you don't play. A boycott, huh? Yeah. Well, it's not, it's very simple. Well, who's going to watch... Uh, Who's going to pay that kind of money, TV rights, to watch you know somebody fifty in the world and getting somebody thirty in the world? So union it's is the answer. Simple. Union uh, is the answer then. Well, it's the well. The, this is the it, we could blab all night about the complications of it. The problem of the current setting is that the the players are only in a position to negotiate against the ATP tournament directors for a slice of that small pie. They do not have a direct representative to work with the slams. That's where the money is, because the 250s, sometimes you see the empty stands. Well, the money right now is in the 1,000s, and and so the player, and in the slams, and the 1,000s. The players are saying, we need strong representation with those two groups. Yeah. But there's, the legalities of it are tremendously complicated, because the the bylaws of the ATP don't have 
a mechanism for the players to directly go to the slams. So there's a whole legal complications that are going to be very difficult to work out. And what Djokovic and Gibblestad were doing was right. Let's figure this out in a way forward. But there's no question they deserve more money. My big hope is that they put some of that money to the lower tournaments. Because right now, very few players can afford to stick it out for the two years it takes to break through from the lower tour to the upper tour. Yeah. And there's just not enough money. And the money hasn't... You talked about the money exponentially growing for the top. There's been no growth on the lower tour. And that's where the money needs to go first. Yeah, that's where I think the struggle is. Because even to play a tournament like this, I'm sure... These, some of these players are good, but some, some of the players who are up and coming, they have to figure out everything. Where do they stay? The coach is traveling. Uh, what is it? Some of the were picking up the, their paychecks today, $420. I mean, you can't. They all have to have sponsors, and we can't allow that to continue. I've had players working with me who say, I can't, I'm not going to try on the tour anymore because I don't have any money. I can't do it. So that's where the money has to go first. But the slams have so much money. So much money. So they can probably just give like 5% each and that's going to change lives Who at knows? some it's level. It's dramatically changed. Every bit. That, and I think a lot of people rightfully feel that the, the federations don't really spend it that well. I've been in the USTA inside of it. I don't particularly think they're spending it that mm. efficiently. So if, if Novak and Pospisil uh, and these guys are, if you fully understand, they're going for a bigger cut so now the the Federer, Nadal, and some of the others, you, you find them the more conservative group? That's Well, they were definitely happier. They were happier to go more slowly. The odds thing in this is that Gimbalstab put a twist on it so that his you had to separate his method, which was to be aggressive, from the fact that the guy is a felon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Gimelstab just wasn't the right person to hitch your wagon onto because he he didn't deserve to be on the ATP board. The guy, you know, it's just I mean he's got his issues. But I I tweeted way back I didn't want him representing me as an alumni. No, you said that even on our podcast when you. Were, I mean, yeah. it took the players so long to. But the guy, you know, he's a he's complications, whatever. But he got things was, done. Huh? The guy is a felon. He didn't belong in that position. No, but I mean, some of the players really thought of him as a guy who got things done. That's well, that I don't know exactly what he got done, but he was rightfully speaking strongly for the players and saying, you know, let's let's get our fair share. And Justin was right to do that. Novak was right to do that. That just you can't get behind a person like Justin. I couldn't. Hmm. All right, so before we wrap this up, uh, last time we talked about technique, about TFO and your book and Sitsipas. Yeah. So who has caught your eye? I mean, is Felix Ojeda-Liassime a guy you think the ceiling is... anyone? I mean, <laughs> he, he's definitely the guy who, who everybody's been talking about, yeah. but I'm still more sold on Sitsipas because I think the, the game he plays is and same like Ash Barty. People yeah. will struggle because everybody's playing the same style when someone comes to the net, plays more aggressive. I think... They can break. They can crack the code. That's what I see. But who am yeah. I? I mean, no. I clearly think that those are a handful of the guys, and obviously Kyrgios if he if he gets his act together. I still don't see anybody close to the top three men. I don't. It's just there's 
still so good. But they're good, but then this is against the law of nature. Someone should be beating them. So is it like the next competition is the weakest? I mean... I just don't see it. I totally agree with you. But we've all been holding our breath for how long? Yeah, I mean... I mean we're gonna, pretty soon we're going to have the next next gen. I mean, and that's why maybe, that's why that's why probably Murray's yeah, coming back. In the next year, because, yeah, yeah, because, but he's, no, because I, he probably think he can win too if he gets yeah. his health back. I mean, well, obviously he had pretty special set of skills. Yeah, but I don't see anybody. Right? Do you? Well, I mean, I was picking Dominic Team in my last podcast, but he withdrew from Cincy. No, not on hard courts. No, no, maybe French. That's it. Te- technically, he doesn't move the right way on hard courts. He is way too far behind the baseline on hard to make a dent. But if US Open plays like last year, I mean... Nice. No. No? Don't even, no. No. Okay. All right. No. I mean, no. He's too you. far behind the baseline. He does not He does not know how to take the proper angle to the ball. And so when you're, when you're on clay, you're given tremendous amount of time because of the slowness of the surface and the need of the, the velocity of his of his shots, but when you move on hard courts, you can move much more efficiently. So people who take a better angle to the ball than he does always gets him on the run. It's just it's just time. He just he takes too much time, and he's forgiven on clay that he doesn't find that. So no, not even close. Not even, okay. No. All right. So we learned something. He was my fourth pick, but yeah. No, thanks, thanks I for think Tsitsipas is a good a good choice. Yeah, Felix is a good choice. He's probably the best, most likely option. And Zverev, are you giving up on him? Too far behind the baseline. Same, huh? Same thing. That's too much time. And I've yet to see a big guy over 6'5 move the way somebody needs to to become great. It's too hard to change direction at that height. But I want to be proven wrong. I'm getting bored. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Tim. Thanks for Thank your time. Thank you so much. Thanks this was, for this is wonderful out. as always. And yeah, we'll be here a couple more days, hopefully. And, Beautiful. Uh, try to get let me know place. if you need tickets. Welcome to Tennis with an Accent. This is Saqib. And today I'm joined by uh, Mike McIntyre, uh, a very well-known voice and the co-voice of uh, the Tennis Canada podcast. So without wasting much of an introduction, because most of you probably know him who will tune into my podcast because their podcast has grown a lot. Welcome, Mike. How are you? you. Thank you, Saqib. I'm good. Thanks for having me on. And I do want to say that it's kind of nice between the two podcasts that we have, I think, quite a bit of mutual support going back and forth on Twitter. So Although I haven't met you and, and Matt in person, I feel like we uh, we know each other already. Yeah, likewise. I mean, uh, like we were talking before the podcast started, you know, we started recording. I should have dropped by and said hello, but I guess it's always the next year. So uh, it's going to be free-flowing conversation. Uh, it's a loose agenda. A big week for Tennis Canada. Bianca Andrescu, the girl from Mississauga. Uh, I was just going through your Twitter page, you know, uh, earlier today, and uh, you guys had her. Uh, for a brief conversation. So just uh, talk about, you know, what this week, uh, week meant to you watching. And, you know, of course, everyone's surprised she won the whole thing. Not the ideal way to, you know, end the tournament. The final was, you know, Serena was an injury, had a say in it. But uh, just talk about her week and what were your expectations and, you know, how the week unfolded. Sure, I'll, I'll try and go through this in somewhat of a coherent fashion here. But uh, 
obviously for us here in Canada, tennis fans in, in Canada, an absolutely epic week of tennis from 19-year-old Bianca Andreescu. Uh, ben Lewis and I, my co-host on the podcast, we were talking at the start of the week about what would make a successful tournament for Bianca as she comes back to the tour, not having played a, a match since the French Open, and that really being her only match in the past four months. So we were saying a successful week from our point of view would have been if she played the tournament and ended it on her own terms in good health without any issues with the shoulder. Um, a bonus to that, we kind of thought, was if she could win a round or two. But in these types of tournaments where you've got such a deep field, you know, basically the top 50 women in the game, not an ideal sort of setting for any player to come back to the tour, especially one who's playing in front of her home crowd with that added pressure on her on her shoulders. Now that we've seen what's happened, absolutely unbelievable how she navigated the draw and just round by round seemed to improve and get better as she went along. The first round match against Jeannie Bouchard, although, you know, Jeannie's had a very tough season now with a nine-match losing streak, it had a lot of hype, a lot of build-up here in Toronto, obviously having the number one and number two players in the country going head-to-head, and credit to Jeannie Bouchard because she came out and played a really smart first set against Bianca, and it didn't look so good. And then Bianca was able to turn that around get into that match and ultimately get the victory. But as she moved through the draw, it didn't get any easier. I mean, Kasatkina can be a tricky opponent. Uh, Kiki Burdens is a top five. Karolina Pliskova, the ace queen, she ended up giving her a bagel in the first set of that match, which uh, Pliskova hadn't had a bagel in over three years. So that was something else. And then uh, taking on Sofia Kennan, a talented uh, fellow young tennis player on the WTA tour with so much promise, took care of her in, in two sets, a tie break in the second. Things got a little testy there with five match points required to close it out. And the next thing you know, she's into the finals against who else but the greatest tennis player to ever live. So just that process to get to the finals was absolutely remarkable. And then as you alluded to, it was not um, the ideal way that anyone would have liked to have seen the final match go with Serena suffering that injury. But uh, regardless, here she is, Bianca Andreescu, the last one standing, the first Canadian champion at the Rogers Cup in 50 years since 1969, which is kind of cool. And uh, she, you know, catapults to 14th in the world, clearly a career high ranking for this young talent. And uh, her magical season just uh, seems to continue here. Yeah, it's kind of a, a really compelling story. I mean, she's a you know, good watch. Even if you're not Canadian, she's just getting popular. She plays a very smart game. Uh, and she seems like she's someone who embraces, again, you know, these all these statements can sound a bit, you know, cliche territory, but this is who she is. I mean, uh, at home tournaments... A lot of players sometimes succumb to the pressure and it's just, you know, and, and she's literally a home player. She's not like, you know, someone from Vancouver playing in Montreal or, you know, Toronto. She's a Mississauga girl. And uh, and, and she delivered on the stage. So uh, in your interactions with her, and I'm sure you followed her a lot closely than some of us have, uh, were you surprised? Okay, one surprise element is, yeah, she came back with literally no tennis in the last four months, but then she comes back here. And uh, she embraces the situation and you went through all the, the tough draw and the, the long grinding matches, like more than two hours, you know, until Serena. So just talk more about, you know, what do you think of her big match uh, ability and also to embrace, you know, the home pressure, which is huge. We've seen so many players from from France in the past struggle at Roland Garros. And uh, even in Australia, we haven't had a local champion 
you know, in a while. So just talk about, you know, uh, that type of mentality. Yeah, I mean, the pressure for Bianca doesn't seem to be a huge factor. She did admit that she was nervous going onto the court to face Serena in the finals. You know, pretty much any player of her age likely looked up to Serena Williams as from their first conscious memories, Serena was already winning Grand Slam tournaments just because of the age difference. Um, but Bianca has admitted that she doesn't mind the pressure. She doesn't mind the attention. When uh, when we spoke to her early in the, earlier in the season, after her uh, win in Indian Wells, she said, uh, who doesn't like this kind of attention? And I mean, clearly for some people, look at what Naomi Osaka has said lately about how she's been feeling sort of under the microscope since her Aussie Open win this year. Definitely something that's challenging for her. But for Bianca Andreescu, she's one that really relishes the spotlight and seems comfortable in that environment. Um, I remember my first time speaking with her was back when she was 15 years old. So uh, already we're going back a few years. And she said to me then that her goal was to be an eventual number one player in the world and Grand Slam champion. And at the time I'm thinking, okay, that's kind of, that's nice. That's kind of cute that this kid wants to come along and, and be a great tennis player. Nice to have goals like that. And certainly we've seen potential from her the past few years, but nobody would have expected that all of a sudden things would just explode in the way that they have for her this year with her incredible record. Her win-loss ratio is is just unparalleled on the tour. She leads the tour in hardcourt victories. And um, and not only did she win in Indian Wells, but she's backed it up now with this victory here on her home courts, as you mentioned, you know, just about a 20-minute drive from where she grew up in Mississauga. So she has taken that pressure. She's just run with it. And um, when I think back to, you know, that girl I spoke to at 15 and the, the, you know, the claims and the goals that she had back then doesn't seem like those are too far fetched now when you see what she's been able to do. And she's pretty confident too. Again, uh, you know, her post match victory speech, when she said, this is just the beginning to her camp. I mean, uh, she was respectful, very respectful of, you know, what Serena went through, but uh, there's also, uh, you know, you can identify like she's made for the big stage. Uh, some may disagree, you know, with that kind of a statement. I don't know how, was there any reaction on Twitter at all for that statement? But uh, to me, that kind of uh, meant, you know, the kind of belief uh, she embodies and she shared that moment with, with her team. Not the ideal way, again, to win, but again, uh, this was special. What do you think of uh, that quote uh, she she made? Uh, I, I think overall, uh, Sakib, there's a, a, a confidence there. I wouldn't call it a cockiness, but there's definitely a belief in herself, a belief in what she can do. And clearly, given the results this year, there's justification for that. But overall, I would say that she came off very positively, and I'm trying to be as unbiased as I possibly can, given that I'm Canadian as well. But uh, being in the media, certainly being able to look at it through that lens, I think she came off as incredibly mature and very poised in the way she handled the situation. I mean, she went immediately over to Serena's chair, who was, you know, Serena Williams was in tears. And how often do you see that? But she was literally bawling because she was in such a combination of pain and disappointment that another tournament was ending this way for her this season. And Bianca just went over and gave her a hug and said, you know what, Serena, you are an absolute beast. Uh, I'm giving you the PG version of what she said, but you're a beast. And and I've grown up watching you and admiring you since I was a kid. And she just spoke so nicely about Serena as well in her post-match victory comments that I don't think she could have handled it any better. It was incredible, the poise for a 19-year-old that she spoke with and how she handled that potentially awkward situation. 
And later in press, Serena Williams, uh, a couple of things that she said that I thought were really nice in terms of comments directed at Andreescu. One was that she called her an old soul, meaning she was very impressed with the maturity and the way she handled the moment. And mm-hmm. uh, the other question that Serena took was, what was your most positive moment in the week? You know, somebody asked her that, trying to frame things in a bit more of a, a positive ending for her week in Toronto. And we were expecting to Serena to perhaps say the victory over Naomi Osaka, which was quite decisive in a previous round. And instead, she said the highlight of her week was today, was Sunday, against Bianca. Even though she lost, even though she couldn't continue, it was a privilege to play against her. And she felt really honored to have those nice, kind words spoken to her that Bianca was able to cheer her up and make her feel better. So uh, I I didn't get any vibe that there was any sort of controversy out there about, uh, you know, Bianca's comments. If there were, I think that was very few and far between overwhelmingly and coming from Serena herself. I think people came away from this week and this championship weekend, nothing short of impressed with the, uh, the youngster. No, no, absolutely. And I'm not trying to insinuate anything, but a lot of times people do tend to read, you know, sometimes, you know, we microanalyze, but yeah, you're right. Uh, that moment was one of the better tennis moments that I've seen, very touching and very genuine when she, you know, reached out to Serena. Uh, so let's talk about Jeannie Bouchard, you know, like she's, again, I wouldn't say she's like the Milo Stranich of this uh, generation, for, you know, if you compare the men's tour, but she was, you know, one of the better tennis players to come out of, uh, you know, Canada, played a Wimbledon final, uh, she still remains very popular. She's a total superstar. Uh, how closely have you followed her her uh, last few years? And uh, uh, where is her game at? She's lost, what, like nine matches in a row. Uh, were you impressed with that, uh, with the first round match? And where does this tennis, uh, uh, what do you think of her cur- current form of tennis? Where does she go from here? Sure, let's talk about Jeannie. I've got lots to say, so feel free to cut me off. But uh... You're happy to go ahead. You mentioned Milos Raonic, and there are similarities, and there are obviously quite a few differences. The similarities are that Jeannie and Milos really took Canadian tennis to a different level um, earlier uh, this this decade. Both of them came along, and and really prior to them, we had um, you know Daniel Nestor in terms of double success, but we'd never really had a bona fide singles player that we th- thought was a, a Grand Slam contender. Uh, Jeannie had that 2014. That was just absolutely incredible, reaching two Grand Slam semifinals. And on top of that, the Wimbledon final uh, that she lost to Petra Kvitova. And no matter what has happened since then, that season can never be taken away from her. That still, to me, is probably the single greatest season of a Canadian tennis player to date, just given the enormous success that she had in the majors. I mean, most players will go through their careers never having one Grand Slam tournament like she did. And she had three that year that were just off the charts. So that was really something else. Unfortunately for Jeannie, uh, where she differs from Milos is that he has followed up a sort of steady rise upwards. You know, he had his Wimbledon final in 2016, but when he's healthy, I consider him still a top 10, top 15 threat in the men's game. Whereas Jeannie Bouchard is now again outside of the top 100 and really seen her stock fall quite sharply since that time. Um, Her fall at the US Open in 2015 will never know really how big an effect that had on her but that concussion uh, certainly things haven't been the same ever since and she was just starting to kind of round into form that summer at the U.S. Open as well as I recall Um, but since then it's been more losses than victories Um, 2018 seemed like a step forward she returned to Fed Cup for the first time in years where she hadn't 
represented Canada in quite some time, and she got two big wins there. She had a couple of semifinals last year in Gestad and also Luxembourg. Uh, so things seem to be back on the upswing. She cracked back into the top 100, um, and even this year made it deep in a tournament in Auckland before succumbing to Julia Gurgis in a really tight match. Since then, she's struggled with an abdominal injury that has reared its head in the past as well, unfortunately. And then, um, you know, at times it seems like her interest might not be as fully committed as you would expect. She's got lots of outside, um, you know, media and, and corporate uh, sort of responsibilities. And she's got a pretty active social life, as you can tell by all of her posts on Instagram and Twitter. But, you know, for some players, they publicize that side of their lives more so than others. Doesn't mean other people don't have a life outside of tennis. We just seem to see it more with Jeannie because there is a fascination amongst the media and her, uh, you know, strong legion of fans that have really stuck with her over the years. Uh, right now, she's, you know, stuck in the, the worst slump of her career, nine straight matches. But there have been signs that things are getting better. Uh, Wimbledon, she she really pushed deep into a third set. Here, taking that first set off of Bianca Andreescu in Toronto, I thought was very impressive. And she's recently teamed up with a new coach, Argentinian Jorge Tadero. Um, and he's been working her really hard in practice. Even when she went out in Toronto, she was still on the court for two different practice sessions every day for the rest of the week, working on all sorts of things in her game. So there's the desire to improve. Um, she wants to get back on track. She's saying all the right things. Uh, unfortunately, you know, on Twitter, there's a lot of people that are critical of Jeannie Bouchard, but I'd like to see them go out with a racket in their hands and see what they can do and uh, tell me if they've ever been the hundredth best at whatever it is they do in life. So I think we got to cut Jeannie some slack. We can't keep comparing her to 2014 Jeannie, but I do see the possibility of her to get back to a 50 to 60 in the world type of a game. Um, if she makes adjustments, uh, diversifies a little bit, and if she sticks with it through all the criticism and the challenges that she seems to have faced. No, I think very well said. And a lot of times, especially we do live in an era where everyone, you know, uh, has a keyboard, you know, either phone or computer, and everybody has an opinion. I haven't really followed, you know, her career graph that much, but she does seem like, to me, she is a tennis player at heart. Yeah, like you said, she has other commitments and responsibilities outside of the code and she you know there's a lot of glamour attached to her but i think uh the point you just made that she did practice after losing in the tournament and she was you know seen attend uh, quite a few sessions and i know you tweeted about some of her practice sessions so yeah that definitely is a good sign for her fans because uh, a lot of time players i think uh, go through this uh this phase when you know eight nine ten matches they have lost and they might be hitting the ball really better but they're just looking for that one win and in these situations so many times a draw is also not kind like she drew andreescu and uh yeah let, let's see you know what the summer holds for her and hopefully mm-hmm. uh you know there's a win coming around where, where she can you know turn the corners a couple so, other things i just wanted to uh, chime in there with uh, sakob is uh, in terms of players sticking around and signing autographs taking selfies and engaging with fans Jeannie bouchard was right near the top of the pile this week in toronto so i was very impressed she stopped and she signed and she took a selfie and a picture with every single fan that asked her after her practices as she made her way back to uh, the locker rooms um so that was really impressive uh, from my perspective and also, uh, on our podcast, Matchpoint Canada, we had quite a few interviews this week, thanks to Tennis Canada and thanks to the WTA Tour. And of all the players that we talked to, Jeannie Bouchard went, I would say, the most sort of above and beyond in terms of the time she took and just how engaging she was with her answers and how much fun she seemed to be having 
which is impressive because we were probably sixth or seventh on her list of media stops that day. But it felt like we were the first people she was talking to. And she was absolutely focused on our questions and gave, you know, compelling answers. So from that standpoint, you know, she knows how to um, market herself and she knows how to play the the media side of things uh, in a very positive way. And so, uh, you know, we wish her nothing but success here in Canada and hope that she can, you know, reach whatever goal it is that she sets out for herself between now and, and the time she hangs up her racket eventually. Actually, thanks for sharing that. That's really good insight for anyone who's going to tune in uh, because uh, that's also good insight for me. And uh, and seldom we appreciate players for their media commitment. And uh, despite, you know, not winning a lot of matches, she still remains a big draw most places at her home tournament. And this is incredible what he just said, uh, the kind of day she had media commitment-wise. And she still uh, went above and beyond, you know, for for your questions and the time she gave you. So yeah, that just bodes really, uh, you know, uh, professionalism and kudos to her. So let's uh, quickly switch the conversation to some other names. And I was going to ask you about Sophia Kennan because I got a chance to speak to her. And in our latest podcast, we inserted a five-minute chat, one-on-one that I requested. And uh, she seemed like, you know, she was very genuine in her response. And and she made a deep run. Uh, and, of course, losing to the eventual winner. Uh, what do you make of her week and how closely have you followed her progress uh, the last year and a half? And uh, just speak at length, whatever you saw of uh, Kennan. Of course. I mean, I, I got to say that I first, you know, tuned in or my ears perked up, so to speak, with that, you know, huge win over Serena Williams at the French Open, which uh, I think caught everyone's sort of attention. Yes, we'd heard about Sophia Kennan before that. But uh, a win over Serena Williams is going to launch you into a, a different sort of uh, level, in my opinion. And she's backed up her season since then. It wasn't just a, a one-hit kind of wonder thing. Doing that on clay, transitioning to grass and, and winning in Mallorca was, was also very impressive. Now she's on the hard courts and she's continuing that success by making the semifinals. So she looks like an all-surface type of player, which must make those in the United States pretty excited because there is quite a lot of American depth on the women's side and to have a 20 year old coming along as well like Sophia Kennan that's a reason for optimism she had a great week in Toronto I mean she had the very tricky Shea Suwei in the first round and she beat her in straight sets then she came up against world number one Ashley Barty I should say former world number one now uh, Ashley Barty and uh, and dis- defeated her in a, in a close match then I saw her coming up against Diana Yastremska um, from uh, Ukraine, who is another one of these young talents, and she beat her 6-2, 6-2, which was incredibly uh, impressive, uh, in my opinion. And then Alina Svitolina, I mean, it just didn't stop this week. She faced tough player after tough player, and she was down, love four in the first set to Svitolina. I thought, okay, well, here it is. Her, her great week is about to come to an end, and she battled back, and she took that one in straight sets, in fact. So a very solid week from her, even the match against Andreescu, uh, where Bianca won that one in straights. Uh, she didn't give up. She fought till the bitter end. Uh, took five match points to finally uh, for Bianca to prevail in that one. So I really liked Kennan's fighting spirit. Um, she also took time out to speak with us on our Match Point Canada podcast, which, uh, you know, deep in the tournament, players sometimes will say, I'm going to kind of limit my media obligations and kind of focus on what's at hand. But she took, uh, you know, almost 10 minutes with us there, which we appreciated. And um, she also played doubles earlier this year with Jeannie Bouchard, and they won in, uh, I want to say, Auckland. And uh, and that was a very first doubles title in Jeannie's career. So 
I said to Sophia, she's kind of like an honorary Canadian in my books now because she had that double success with Jeannie, which, uh, you know, she gave a, a bit of a laugh on that one. But a uh, very nice young girl and a uh, young woman, and she seems to be coming along and just steadily making improvements, working her way up the rankings. I think you've got a real good one on your hands there with, uh, with Kenan. Absolutely. Before we talk uh, on the ATP side of things, if you were to uh, stack your uh, top five, top six favorites heading into Flushing Meadows at this point, you know, as we segue into Cincinnati, what are some of the names uh, uh, from Ash Party to Osaka? Who's in your list? Well, here's the part of the podcast where I hope you go back and edit this out later when all of my predictions go wrong at the U.S. Open <laughs> in a couple of weeks. Um, but I'll tell you the ones who are on the radar, aside from Bianca Andreescu, who I think absolutely belongs in that uh, you know top five to top ten category, given the way she's been playing this year, especially on on hard courts. Uh, and I think in a Grand Slam, it's going to be even better for her because she's going to get that day off in between matches. Uh, if Serene is healthy, and I think she should be, uh, she's obviously going to be one to watch. And she's so hungry to get that 24th Grand Slam and tie Margaret Court. She said after her um, you know, withdrawal here in Toronto that these upper back spasms are things that she's had in the past. They normally last 24 to 36 hours, and then they go away. So it didn't seem to me, based on what she was saying, that this was something that should be a concern for the U.S. Open. Um, aside from the two of them, Simona Halep, um, who withdrew from her match in Toronto in the quarterfinals against Marie Boskova, that was more precautionary than anything. And uh, Halep looked really good in a 6-2, 6-1 victory over Svetlana Kuznetsova before she uh, did have to leave the tournament here. So Wimbledon champion, uh, typically plays really well in the hard courts in Canada and Cincinnati. I think she's definitely one to watch and someone who can play a lot more freely now that she's got those two Grand Slams under her belt. Um, and aside from them, I mean, the WTA Tour, as you know, Sakub, is just so deep these days. There's so much talent. You could throw out 15 to 20 different names, and really any of them could come away with the title in Flushing Meadows, and it wouldn't even be that shocking, to be perfectly honest. If you look back to last summer with Naomi Osaka, it's not like she was coming in with a whole lot of steam. She went out first round in Montreal, and I think she just went a couple of rounds deep in uh, in Cincinnati before she went on that epic two-week stretch in New York. So just because a player is, is coming in with a hot streak doesn't necessarily mean anything. And I think the way the women's game is right now, uh, it's really going to depend on the draw and who's hidden their stride at, uh, at the right time in New York. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the WDA side has, you know, like you said, so many names that can uh, that can lay claim, you know, on any given final weekend, and uh, that's a very healthy depth. Uh, let's talk about the men's side, uh, and let's focus on Felix Ojalasim and Denis Shapovalov, some of uh, uh, your countrymen. Uh, Ojalasim lost today, so we can talk about his loss. Uh, and his last, uh, you know, two weeks in Cincinnati and Montreal, and this is a very, you know, very fine player, young kid. Again, lofty comparisons. I'm sure he knows how to block them. So, what is your take on the kind of year he's had, and uh, uh, how good of a mind frame he's in, according to you, given his uh, year heading into New York? Well, it's interesting to me that he did lose earlier today, as as we record this um, tonight. Uh, he he lost six three six three to Kikmanovic in the first round of Cincinnati and already there are a lot of people that are starting to dissect and criticize and I think we've got to remember this kid just turned 19 years old a few days ago 
Um, he, he's already, you know, basically on the cusp of the top 20 here. Uh, he's got a real possibility to end the season even closer to potentially near the, the top 10, certainly within the top 15. And he started the season well outside the top 100. So a really impressive rise from another Canadian. It seems we're just absolutely blessed this year in the uh, types of results um, from our young contingent of players. And again, as I mentioned earlier, we've never had this in Canada before. So uh, let's not get too carried away, but he is a supremely talented player. He's an all-court player. In fact, he's one of the few Canadians that seems to really thrive and want to play a lot of matches on clay, which again is not something that we really have in abundance here in Canada. We've got a lot of hard true uh, green clay courts, but we don't really have any true European red clay. So for him to really be drawn to that surface and choose to play it a lot bodes well for the future um, for the clay court swing but he's very comfortable on hard courts as well. And he had a good tournament in Montreal where if you think there was pressure on Bianca Andreescu in Toronto to perform, uh, double that for Felix being a French-Canadian, uh, Quebecois uh, from that province, and I thought he handled it really well. He had the odd sort of draw of having open against Canadians, so he played Vashik Pospisil in the first round, which was a, a rematch from Wimbledon. Felt really bad for Vashik, who missed eight months due to back surgery, and he's got to come back. And uh, almost two successive events, he's got to play against Felix Auger-Aliassime, put up a good fight against him in the first round in Montreal. That ended in a third set tiebreak. Very impressive from, from Vashik, who's going to try to get back into the top 100. Second round, it didn't get any easier as Felix had to go up against Milos Raonic. And Felix does sometimes tend to struggle against big servers. They split the first two sets. Felix took the first 6-3. Milos took the second 6-3 and then unfortunately had to retire as his back was giving him problems. And unfortunately for Milos, it's been a whole season of injuries. And even when he's gotten through a tournament on his own sort of uh, power, he says he hasn't ever felt healthy in 2019, which is very disappointing uh, as he's getting closer and closer to 30 years old. But his body seems closer to 50, the way things have, have been going, unfortunately. Uh, Felix fell to Karen Hatchinov in a close match. And I think if you're going to go down to a top 10 player like that, there's no shame in that whatsoever. So We've got a lot of reason to be optimistic with Felix. He's got a very well-rounded game. He's got a quiet confidence to himself. Him and Dennis are really quite different in their personalities and their tennis games, which I think gives Canadian tennis fans just uh, a nice little uh, dynamic between the two of them. They also happen to be really good buddies, so it'll be cool if we get to see them team up in doubles, whether it be in Davis Cup or in uh, tournament play down the road. Because, um, yeah, again, two young talents, 19, 20 years old, uh, the future looks bright in Canada with those two. And uh, even though they're not going to be performing and having huge results week in and week out, you know, find me an 18, 19, 20-year-old uh, who is. Yeah. No, you're very well said. And um, I'm going to shift the conversation to Dennis Shapovalov. And when I talked to Michael Galler of, the, of I think, TSN, uh, the Canadian uh, Sports Network, he was on the podcast. And uh, I just want to draw these comparisons. Um, have you noticed... The rise of Felix is more steady, and uh, he's going through the same thing what Dennis went through a couple of years ago. Uh, how is the Canadian media uh, treating Dennis? Uh, uh, is he being given like some sort of a rope because he's still very young, or is uh, are there comparisons that are unfair? Because you know we are all very quick to draw conclusions. So, is there any breathing room, you know, given by the media and the podcasters or fans to Dennis Shapovalov because he's hasn't been able to put. Uh, the kind of results that were expected of him. Of course, he's still very young, future is very bright. So just talk about that. 
Yeah, I'd say overall that the media and the fans have been fair to Dennis. I mean, they realize he's only 20 years old and think about what he's accomplished already. I mean, that stirring run to the semifinals of the Rogers Cup two years ago was really what set him on the map in the tennis world. And then uh, in 2018, he made the semifinals in Madrid, which was very unexpected because he's not really a clay court uh, player by training. And uh, and then this year he made the semifinals, as did Felix, opposite semifinals in Miami. So I think when you look at some of those big results, that's pretty impressive, to say the least. And um, the media here has been fair. They haven't tried to pit the two against one another. Um, there have been some comparisons. I mean, it's fair to just sort of dissect and, and talk about the differences in their games. But I think overall the media has been fair. The, the media in Canada, I don't know what it's like in the U.S., but in Canada when it comes to tennis, Tennis definitely takes a backseat to hockey, takes a backseat to the baseball with the Toronto Blue Jays, and uh, absolutely everything seemed to take a backseat this year to the Toronto Raptors winning the NBA championship. So when players aren't doing as well in the tennis world, it's almost kind of like in Canada, they're, they're just not discussed as much, they're kind of forgotten. But then when they do something big, like what Bianca did this week, they're front and center on the front page of all the newspapers, they're getting tweets from our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. Uh, and all of a sudden, people take notice. But day-to-day, week-to-week, tennis is still not at the forefront of the Canadian sporting uh, consciousness. And uh, I'm hoping, uh, again, growing up being a, a huge tennis fan in this country, I'm hoping that that starts to change in the coming years. And if these these men and women start to have success at the Grand Slam level, it doesn't have to be a tournament victory, but going deep in these Grand Slam draws, I hope that tennis kind of reaches a higher plateau in our country and became become something with a, a little more more prominence. But for right now, I'd say no. The media is fair. Dennis is uh, is going through a bit of a, a slump this second, uh, um, you know, sort of middle part of the season, if you will. And um, you know, we're hopeful that uh, that things round into form for him. But we're also, I think, grounded enough to realize that there's going to be a learning curve. And uh, with a game like his, which is pretty flashy, with that uh, one-handed backhand plays with a lot of flair, likes to have the crowd energy on his side. I think there's some maturing that needs to happen to sort of calm down at key points in the match, realize you don't have to finish every rally in one or two shots, because actually when he gets deep into rallies, he has actually quite a bit of success. I just don't think maybe he realizes that that's an okay way to proceed as well on the tennis court. Yeah, no, definitely. There's a lot of uh, maturity and growth opportunity for all the young guys, even Sasha Zverev, you know, who's a couple of years older. Uh, his name keeps coming, you know, on the restless list, especially by tennis Twitter and the media, when he's going to win, when he's going to make the semi. Uh, and while we do realize, like, the big three are playing older, we still want some of these young guys to lay claim. So it's kind of, you know, catch-22 situation. Uh, so let me put you on the spot again. Uh, with the U.S. Open, you know, two weeks away, some key results coming in already in Cincinnati. Uh, how do the men stack up? Uh, name... Uh, the few contenders besides the big three, because big three is easy, and you know we can <laughs> never stop talking about those guys. They're marvelous. Well, I'm but glad. I'm glad the party said, to create a name. I'm glad you yeah. said beside the the big three, because realistically, I mean, you tell me, do you expect anyone outside of those three to walk away with the trophy in Flushing Meadows? Because because I sure don't. Yeah, it's kind of hard, you know, and I, I and I'll agree with you because uh, there's no one that comes to mind. I mean, uh, my dark horse would be. Again, uh, well, again, like you said, you know, it could be, it could sound funny in two weeks when my, you know, prediction goes out the window. I think Dominic Team is one guy. If he there's a good enough draw and he's physically fit, he can make a run. But I don't know if he's going to win his first slam in New York. But he's definitely 
he's fit as a bull. I mean, the guy works hard. Uh, his kick serve and you know really suited very well to the the slow high bouncing conditions in flushing last year. Uh, but again, uh, to expect him uh, to repeat that performance would be something. And if he does that, if he makes the quarters or semis, I mean, then he's legit because then this will be his second major where outside of Roland Garros, he's going to be delivering the goods. But yeah, to answer your question, yeah, it's very unlikely. I can't even... But he, he's he's one guy who could be in the mix at least. He could challenge one of these guys. Right, and, uh, and he's made, he's yeah, made the, the finals yeah. of, of Roland Garros, so he's proved that he can go deep in a slam and he's not intimidated, you know, when he gets to a certain stage. And he does have victories over, you know, all the uh, the big names as well at one point or another, as we saw, uh, you know, in that hard court final earlier this year uh, as part of that sunshine uh, swing uh, where he beat Roger Federer. Um, and, and he's got multiple clay court wins against Nadal, which, I mean, how many people can say that in their careers? So I would say, yes, he's that that probably the leader of the pack behind the big three, but nobody really seems ready to be able to do it. Nobody to me seems like they believe enough in themselves that they can go out there and beat, you know, two of these guys in succession or three of these guys in succession. But imagine that that's a tall order where we're asking these kids to go out and beat, you know, the greatest tennis players of all time, one after another, after another to hoist their first grand slam trophy, which seems, yeah, realistically next to impossible. Look at what, Nadal even did this week on hard courts where he struggled to be fit enough to compete the past few years and look at what he did in Montreal absolutely blowing away Daniil Medvedev in the finals the only person all week to test him was Fabio Fanini who seems to play some of his greatest tennis when he goes up against Nadal but nobody else and uh, and again we've got a member of the big three who's hoisting uh, you know a Masters 1000 tournament I was at the first Rogers Cup that Rafa Nadal won in 2005 when he beat Andre Agassi. That really seemed like sort of a passing of the torch from the Agassi yeah. generation to Rafa and, Rod- and Roger. I, I was there too. It's kind of funny. Yeah, <laughs> I made my first trip to Canada and watched that uh, rain interrupted final against well, that Agassi. That was a good year. That was a good year to go to see that uh, you know last big hurrah for Agassi in Canada. And, and Nadal, who at the time people thought was just a clay quarter, and yet here he was, you know, translating that aggressive game, fighting spirit to the hard courts and, and coming away with the title. Here we are 14 years later, he's still hoisting the tournament, and he did last year in Toronto as well. So, um, yeah, aside from these big three who seem intent on continuing to dominate the sport, even at their, you know, quote-unquote advanced ages, um, which really gives hope for someone like me, in my late thirties that I should still be able to go out there and, and do it on the public courts. But that's another story, uh, Sakub. Um, but aside from them, Dominic team, uh, maybe, you know, Karen Hachinov or, or um, CC pass, but I, I really don't believe that they're ready to hoist a, a major title with uh, Djokovic Federer and that I'll still going the way they are. Yeah. I think for that to happen again, uh, let's deconstruct it for a couple more minutes before we wrap this up. It's very unlikely, but then they need help. Any one of those guys, or even like, say, Amarin Cilic when he won his tournament, or Kei Nishikori, who's been lurking around for so long and plays a great first week and then just comes out of steam after spending too many hours in the court. I think anybody who has to win has will need help from someone else. Say, like, classic example is Wimbledon. When Nick Kyrgios drew Nadal, that match, for me, was 50-50, and Nadal really came uh, prepared for that match because of whatever was going on before the match. And that kind of, I think, propelled his run to the semis. So, and 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 that was the only good match at Wimbledon this year besides the big three matches that were semis and finals. So, 
unlike the women's field the men's field uh, seems seems kind of depleted when they stock up against a big 3 but if you take the big 3 out they you know like the washington tournament is a phenomenal tournament sissy paskirios match was good kirios medvedev was good but yeah if you put those three guys in the equation then everybody looks you know second by quite a distance but every day is a new day maybe these guys you know will catch maybe there'll be an upset you know uh, through not through a journey you know i don't want to use the journeyman but not through someone who's ranked lower but mm-hmm. some of these guys can maybe sneak a win where you know has to show up sometime i don't know if he's good enough to win a major yet but he has to show up at a major and uh, maybe you know raise his hand and say okay i'm here and i'm not going to fold yeah uh, i don't, don't want to uh, say uh, i don't want to say i'm looking forward to when the big 3 finally retire uh because i'm going to enjoy every opportunity i have to to watch these guys because i think one day you know we're going to be telling our kids and our grandkids hey i was involved in tennis at the time that the three greatest players of all time were playing so i'm not trying to rush them along but it is going to be interesting when they do retire to see how the atp tour kind of evolves and how these personalities emerge and and what happens do we have one or two that suddenly decide to grab it and run with it or are we going to have something and this is what i would kind of expect more like what the wta tour has right now where it's kind of done by committee and you see a bit of a revolving door of grand slam champions i mean when i look at the draw in montreal and i look at the bottom quarter and you had quarter final matchups between uh, hachinov and zverev and then medvedev and team i said hey this is what grand slam uh, semifinals might look like in you know 3 4 5 years time and uh, i mean when it gets here i'll embrace it because you got to just go with whatever you've got and i'll find the positives in that but uh, right now it sure doesn't seem like that time is uh, approaching anytime soon yeah i think very well said and uh, you, i think you kind of echoed the sentiment of many of us who've just uh, discussed this at length uh, in podcasts or even outside of podcasts uh, um, yeah but uh, this is uh, another tournament coming up maybe maybe this is where someone makes uh, their mark uh, on that note i think uh, i think we covered quite a lot uh, of ground and uh thank you for joining us uh i know you had a busy week covering your home tournament and uh it's uh, to say the least but you know what it's my favorite week of the year it's kind of like christmas and uh long days you know you're on site from 9 in the morning until often after midnight but there's nowhere else i'd uh, i'd love to be and uh, i just want to say thank you for having me on sakib and uh, to you and matt and your entire team over there you guys do a great job i love following your content i cannot believe how much writing you guys are able to produce and put out on a regular basis uh i mean i don't even know if matt is is human the way that he goes about his writing but uh yeah, i enjoy the podcast and i enjoy the yeah. uh the sort of online uh you know twitter relationship that we have with you guys and and keep up the good work definitely matt is like the dominic team times thomas muster time <laughs> whoever of the writing the guy doesn't sleep you know he can just deliver articles give him a week off between tournaments one day you know he might need a break it's a funny story i want to share i mean I, i never thought i'll share this in a podcast when me and matt were like beginning to collaborate i reached out to him and he was i, I believe sh- uh, shopping somewhere and then he say call me back in few minutes and i say hey can you help me out and i just if you can just put out couple of articles for me he said sure uh, what do you want i say if uh, can you give me an article about federer by tomorrow morning he says look if you can't write about federer we should close shop i can write a, 10 articles about federer by the time you wake up i said wow this guy is something else so and believe me i mean like you, everybody's read uh, this is not the opportunity to praise matt but yeah the kind of work he's done and uh, he does not compromise quality he does produce a lot of voluminous kind of writing but it's all good written work and it's uh, 
we're lucky to have him on tennis with an accent. And I should also and say, definitely. I should also say before I go here that uh, Jane Voigt was one of the first media members I met when I covered my first tournament in 2008 in DC. And uh, she's been up to Canada a couple of times, not as much recently, but uh, very, very nice uh, person, super knowledgeable and uh, enjoyed working side by side with her in the media room uh, about uh, 10, 11 years ago. Yeah, again, a great addition to our team. Uh, Jane's been, you know, working very closely with us and, you know, her in-depth uh, writing is something, you know, we are all big fans of. So, yeah, uh, thanks for taking these names out. And this is, again, uh, not supposed to be promoting our own work, but, yeah, I think it was just uh, well-deserved and well-mentioned. So on that note, I think uh, this was enjoyable, fun. Uh, hopefully we can do this again by the time the tennis year is in the books and maybe we can fall back on this podcast and see how Dominic team and how some of these other names did at the US Open. On that note, it's Sakib signing off uh, with Mike. Uh, please listen to the Tennis Canada podcast. Please also uh, review and rate the Tennis with an Accent podcast and we'll be back with another episode same time next week. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.